Good morning. I'm glad you're here today. Bless you, Chris. Uh, we're continuing in our series, Unstoppable, as we teach through the book of Acts. The gospel, and by extension, the church is unstoppable because it's part of God's plan. It's God's plan for our salvation and your salvation and for God's glory. He's ordained it before the foundation of the world. It's his plan. The title of today's sermon is called, Have You Been With Jesus? It's from Acts chapter 4, the first 22 verses. You can turn there if you'd like on page 1093 in the Bibles we provide. We're also going to be looking at Luke chapter 16, 20, 21, and 24 if you want to have a finger in Luke. I'm going to back up and do a little bit of review. Remember, the book of Acts was written by Luke, the physician who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. So the Gospel of Luke records some of the words and deeds of Jesus that he did while he was on earth. Then he went to be with the Father in heaven after his resurrection. And Acts continues to record the works of Jesus done through the power of his Holy Spirit as God started and grew the church. Now Luke has uh, 24 chapters. In chapter 23, Jesus is crucified. At the end of chapter 24 is his ascension into heaven. Just before that, Luke records some teaching that Jesus gave the apostles. In Luke 24, 44, we have this. He, Jesus, said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So that's the Old Testament. So Jesus says everything had to be fulfilled. He had told this to the apostles before, before he was crucified, but he's telling it to them again. And he would have gone over some of the Old Testament and shown them how it pointed to Jesus. So in the Old Testament, there was the Passover lamb that was sacrificed, and the blood of the lamb saved the firstborn. When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was God's plan. The Old Testament points to Jesus. And Jesus was crucified on Passover. That wasn't a mistake. It was God's plan. Jesus died at 3 in the afternoon. When were the Passover lambs slain? They were slain starting at 3 in the afternoon. That's not an accident. It was part of God's plan. Two days after Passover in the Old Testament was the day of first fruits. First fruits celebrated the spring barley harvest. It's also the day that Jesus was resurrected. Easter morning was the day of first fruits. Jesus was our first fruits from among the dead. Because he was resurrected, we know that we're going to be resurrected. It's part of God's plan. He's working it out. None of this is by accident. Then we continue in Luke. Then he Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So, Jesus, again, tells them what he's already told them. The Messiah had to suffer. This wasn't a mistake. It's part of God's plan. I told you this before. I've opened your eyes, so now you can fully understand. I'm telling you again. 
You're going to be my witnesses to this. I'm going to send the Spirit. Then you're going to be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem. So Luke ends with Jesus ascending into heaven. And then we go to the book of Acts. It starts with Jesus ascending into heaven. He gives us a few more details. And then the apostles and God choose a replacement apostle for Judas who had betrayed Jesus. And they pick Matthias. Then we get to Acts chapter 2 and Pentecost. What's Pentecost? Pentecost is a Greek word meaning 50th. So I, I just mentioned the day of first fruits, the day Jesus was resurrected. Pentecost was 50 days after the day of first fruits. It celebrated the beginning of the summer harvest, the wheat harvest. And later, uh, Jews added to that celebration the celebration of the giving of the law. The law was given in the third month. Pentecost is celebrated in the third month. They added that. If you remember, Moses came down from Mount Sinai carrying the uh, tablets with the Ten Commandments written on them. He comes upon Israel. He had been gone for a while. The Israelites had started partying, drinking, orgy, and of all things, they're worshiping a golden calf that Aaron had made. Not good, right? Moses throw down the, throws down the tablets, they break. He says, who is for the Lord? And the only people that come forward are some Levites. And he tells the Levites, go throughout the camp, start killing your brothers and sisters. And they did that. How many people died that day? How many people died? Nobody. 3,000 people. About 3,000 people died that day. Fast forward about 1,475 years to the day of Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes down like tongues of fire. There's a noise like a wind. The Spirit's poured out. People start speaking in tongues. Peter does a sermon. How many people are saved? 3,000. That was a lot better answer that. A lot quicker that time. So when the law was given, 3,000 people died. When the Spirit was given, 3,000 people were given life. It's not an accident that it was at Pentecost. Uh, I don't think it's an accident that it was 3,000 people. It's God working out his plan. All of Scripture points to Jesus, old and new. It screams Jesus Christ is the Messiah for anybody who has ears that wants to hear. It just absolutely screams it. So, the Holy Spirit's poured out, just like Jesus had said in those verses we looked at. And then Jesus said, what? You're going to be my witnesses. So what does Peter do? He starts to witness. He starts to tell the people about Jesus. In fact, in Acts 2.32, we have this verse. Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. He's being a witness just like Jesus told him he was going to be. And he preaches from the Old Testament, the only testament they had at the time, from Joel chapter 2 and says, this is a fulfillment of that. God's pouring out his spirit on all people. Old men will dream dreams and young men will see visions. It's not a mistake. God ordained this. Hundreds of years ago, he prophesied it. He's working out his plan. And then he's, he taught from Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 to show that Jesus is the Messiah. And a lot of people believe that day. It was a good day and it was a it was the beginning of the church. Then in Acts 2.42, we know that what? The, the believers focused on the teaching of the apostles and breaking of bread and fellowship and prayer. And that's where we were when Peter and John, three in the afternoon, they're walking through the temple for afternoon prayer. 
and they run into this lame man being carried to the temple so he could beg, and they healed him. This is what Bull preached on last week, Acts chapter 3. It wasn't a mistake that they ran into that man and healed him. That was God's plan. They healed him, and that brings us to our text today. My point in going through this little bit of review is this. God is working out his plan. He has a plan, and he's working it out. He's growing his church according to his plan. So this gets us to our text for today, Acts 4, starting in verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So a word on the Sadducees. The Sadducees were religious aristocrats. They were landowners. They were wealthy. They were close to Rome, and their interests and Rome's interests were very united. Rome picked who the high priest was going to be, usually a Sadducee. So peace was important for the Sadducees. They did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They thought this life was it. How you're a religious leader and you don't believe in the afterlife, I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me, but that's where they were. So they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, so they were, what do we say? Sad, you see. That's how we remember that. It's a little corny. <laughs> but it works. So they, they weren't looking for a Messiah. They didn't want a Messiah. They just wanted peace so they could maintain their power and control and money. And then in verse 2 here, where it says, they were disturbed because of the apostles' teaching, the people, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Two issues there. The apostles were teaching without authorization, and they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they, they weren't just saying Jesus was resurrected. They're saying everybody's going to be resurrected. The Sadducees didn't like that because that meant people were going to be looking for a Messiah, might cause trouble. Rome might come in and cause trouble for the Sadducees. They might lose their power. Going forward in verse 3, they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Now we know from Acts 1.15 that after Jesus ascended into heaven, there were about 120 followers. That's all there was. Then at Pentecost, 3,000 were added. And here we're up, we're up to 5,000 men. We don't know if that includes women or not. If it doesn't, then we're up to 10,000 adult believers. The church is growing really fast. So Peter and John were seized again. Not a mistake, not an accident. God's working out his plan. Back in Luke 21, Jesus told the apostles this. He says, But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. So when Peter and John were seized, that was part of God's plan. He wanted them to be witnesses for him. This was the beginning of the persecution of the church. They preached the gospel. A bunch of people were saved. A bunch of people in power didn't like it. we got to shut this thing down. So they arrest them. It's the beginning of the persecution of the church. Of course, persecution for the, of the church is good for the church, uh, not bad for the church, because God can use everything for his good. My point here is this. Part of God's plan 
is for us to be his witnesses. That's part of his plan to spread the gospel and to grow the church. So my question for you is, what kind of witness are you? What kind of witness is your life to your kids, your parents, your spouse, your family, your co-workers, people you go to school with? Can they see Jesus in how you live your life? And what kind of witness are your lips? Are you speaking about Jesus to people as the Spirit leads? Or are you afraid to be a witness? Because God's called you to be a witness. That's part of his plan. Back to Acts 4, verse 5. The next day the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. I want to talk a little bit about this high priest's family. It says Annas was a high priest. Annas wasn't the high priest. His son-in-law Caiaphas was a high priest. But Annas had been high priest until 15 AD, and then Rome removed him. And he had five sons, and one son-in-law at least that we know of, Caiaphas. They all served as high priests at different times. Caiaphas had a pretty long run. He would have been the high priest that turned Jesus over to Pilate. So it says Annas was a high priest. Maybe, in effect, he was. Maybe he was the person really calling the shots as his various... Uh, sons and son-in-law served as high priest. Now I have here the rich man and Lazarus. That's a, a parable told in Luke 16. Some people don't think it's a parable. Some people think it's something that had historically happened. But some people think it's a parable that Jesus told about Caiaphas. I'll, I'll just run over the details of that parable. There's a rich man that wears a fancy purple robe, kind of sounds like Caiaphas, the high priest, lives in a big house with a gate. Outside the gate, Lazarus begs for food from the rich man's table. The rich man doesn't give him any. They both die. Lazarus gets carried by angels to Abraham's bosom. That's where Old Testament saints went when they die. They went to Abraham's bosom. The rich man went to hell. He's in hell. He wants water. He can see Abraham and he can see Lazarus. So he says to Abraham, send Lazarus with some water for me, for my tongue. Abraham says, no, can't do that. There's a big chasm between us. It's not going to happen. Then the rich man says, at least send him to warn my family. I've got five brothers. Warn them so that they don't come to this place of torment. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. They can listen to them. And of course, uh, the rich man knows they're not going to listen to them because he also had Moses and the prophets. He had the scriptures. So he said, uh, the rich man says, well, if somebody comes back from the dead, then they'll, then they'll repent. And Abraham comes back and says, they won't be convinced even if somebody comes back from the dead. So some people think that's a parable told about Caiaphas and his family, and it may, may well have been. Kind of the ironic thing there is Jesus had a friend named Lazarus, right? In the New Testament. He raised him from the dead. And we know from John chapter 12 that six days before he was crucified, Jesus went to Lazarus' house and had dinner. That's when Mary 
broke the perfume bottle and blessed Jesus. And Judas, the betrayer, complained about all the money they lost. Six days before the crucifixion, Jesus went there. When Jesus was there, all kinds of Jews came to see Jesus and see Lazarus. And John 12 records this. I put my glasses away. John 12, starting in verse 10. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So here we have this parable. A Lazarus comes back from the dead. Jews, Jewish leaders don't care. Instead, they say, we already want to kill Jesus. Let's kill Lazarus too. We don't want anybody believing in Jesus. So I think that's kind of amazing or astonishing they see somebody come back from the dead and their, their reaction is, well, we have to kill him too. They didn't even consider that Jesus was maybe the Messiah. Back to Acts 4, verse 7. They, that's the Jewish leaders, had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them, by what power or what name did you do this? So they know that in order for this man to be healed, it took supernatural power. Somebody had control of that power. Somebody had to allow that power to be used. Who was that and whose name was it? Peter answers. The next verse says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to pause here, go back to look at a couple more verses in Luke 21. Jesus told them, And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. So when it says Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit, it's not an accident that he was filled. It's not a coincidence that God gave him words to say. Jesus told him ahead of time, I'm going to be with you. I'll tell you what to say. And your accusers won't be able to say anything. That's how powerful and effective your words are going to be. So again, God's working out his plan according to his purpose. Continuing in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, I'm going to pause there again. That word there, healed, is actually the, the Greek word sozo. It's in the New Testament 110 times. 93 times it's translated as saved or save. So he's really saying, if you're asking by what name this man was saved, that's, that's the word he's using, saved. In Luke 19.10, uh, it says, you know, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That's the same word, sozo, save. So that's the word Peter uses here in verse 9. Then he continues, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now this healed is a different word. It means of sound body, physically well, fit for service. That's that healed. It's a different word. Then he continues, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. This is really strong language here. This is from Psalm, the stone that you builders rejected is from Psalm 118.22. But in the Greek, so Jesus quotes this uh, Old Testament passage. He quotes it. It's recorded in the Gospels. 
but he quotes it like it's written. He says, uh, the stone the builders rejected is the way it is, the builders, but in front of the Sanhedrin, so Peter and John are in front of the Sanhedrin, 71 men arranged in a semicircle. They're in the middle, and Peter says, the stone you builders rejected. He makes it much stronger. And his word for rejected isn't the word used in the Old Testament or the word that Jesus used. The word they used means rejected. The word Peter used is much stronger, and it means scorned or disdained, very strong. So when he's in front of the Sanhedrin, instead of saying the stone the builders rejected, he says the stone you builders utterly disdained. Very strong language that wouldn't have been lost on the Sanhedrin. They would have understood the strength of what he was saying. I think this using this passage also would have been powerful because of the parable of the tenants. The tenants uh, parable is shared in Luke chapter 20, and it goes like this. There was a man who owned a vineyard that was far away. So he had tenants taking care of the vineyard for, for him. Then he sent his servant to check it out. And what did they do to the servant? They killed him. So he sent another servant. They killed him. So then he sent his son. He said, surely they will respect my son. They won't kill him. Of course, what do they do to the son? They kill him as well. That's clearly a picture of the Old Testament prophets and Jesus. So the Jewish leaders killed the Old Testament prophets, and they would soon kill Jesus. That parable is a picture of that. The chief priests were there when Jesus told that parable. And when he was done telling that parable, he did this from Luke 20, verse 17. Jesus looked directly at them. So this is probably the high priest he's looking at. And asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Skip a verse to 19. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. They would have remembered that. That wasn't that long ago, that Jesus used that same passage, and they knew it was against them, and again, they sought to kill Jesus. That was their response. They didn't consider his claims. They just wanted to kill him. What's interesting here is Peter and John are brought in to explain themselves. They're essentially the defendants. But when Peter starts talking and sharing, who's really the defendants? The Sanhedrin, right? They're, they're the ones that are really on trial here. He's saying, he's telling them, you killed the Messiah. You builders scorned the stone that is actually the cornerstone. And of course, they're spiritually dead. They don't want to hear it. They don't even consider it, at least the bulk of them. Maybe some of them, some of them do. And so Peter's words fall on deaf ears. But he continues really strongly in verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Again, we would include the Sanhedrin, and that word saved there is the same word from verse 9, sozo. It's, it's saved. So he's, he's making a parallel there, and again, this is strong language. 
He's saying, you killed Jesus. Jesus is the only way you can be saved. That would have made them, made them very uncomfortable. Christian Radio this week, I heard that 47% of millennial Christians, whatever that is, younger than me, that's all I know, 47, 47% of millennial Christians think it's wrong to share their faith with somebody of another faith. I think that's a sad state of affairs. Do they believe that Jesus is the only name given under heaven to mankind by which we must be saved? Evidently not, or they wouldn't be afraid to share it with other people. God calls you to be a witness, to testify to your faith, to everybody. It's part of his plan. It's what he's working out. My point here is this, as Peter makes this transition from this man being filled, healed physically to God, to Jesus being the only one by which we can be saved spiritually. The man was saved by Jesus physically, but this points to Jesus saving spiritually. It was a sign that Jesus saves. It gave Peter and John an opportunity to witness in front of the Sanhedrin. It's part of God's plan. He's working it out. He's spreading his gospel. He's building his church. How does the Sanhedrin respond? Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Remember, the Jewish leaders were also astonished at Jesus. He was also uneducated, didn't have a degree. Yet, he spoke as one who had authority. Even as a 12-year-old in the temple, he spoke as one who had authority. It didn't make sense. They were astonished at Jesus. Now they're astonished at Peter and John, uneducated Galileans, so convincing in front of the Sanhedrin that the Sanhedrin has nothing to say. They knew that these men had been with Jesus, so they knew Jesus. Not only did they know Jesus, but Jesus had filled them with the Holy Spirit, given them words to say. They were bold. They were courageous. They were witnesses for Jesus Christ the beginning of the church, God working out his plan. My question for you is, have you been with Jesus? Have you considered his claims? Have you confessed him as Lord? Or are you like the Jewish leaders that don't think they need saving and don't even want to consider the claims of Jesus? All of Scripture, Old Testament and New, screams that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. It absolutely screams it. Everything points to Jesus. Is he going to be your Lord or not? If you've made that decision, if Jesus Christ is your Lord, are you a witness? Or are you a closet Christian? Is your life a witness? And do you look for opportunities to witness as the Holy Spirit leads? It's God's plan for us to be witnesses. It's his plan to grow the church. Now I'll read through the remaining verses here, starting with 15. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer 
in his name. It surprises me that these uh, Sanhedrin, supposedly smart men, never stop to consider that Jesus is the Messiah. At some point in time, I would think they would look at each other and say, people are being healed and raised from the dead and resurrected faster than we can kill them. What's going on here? Is God at work? But they don't even consider that. But that's the way it is when people are spiritually blind. When God hasn't opened their eyes, their hearts are hard, they don't even consider the claims of Christ. So they, verse 18, Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Again, God working out his plan, growing his church. We're called to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. I'd like to call Teresa Lanky up. I'm in a small group with Teresa. We meet on Tuesday nights. And she's going to be a witness for Jesus Christ. She's going to tell us a little bit about her story. Come on up. I got water, I got Kleenex. Let me know if you need anything. Here you go. Hold that pretty close. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, as Mike said, my name is Teresa Lanky. Um, last Sunday, Mike had come up to me and asked me to share my testimony this week. And I have to admit, my first reaction and the first thing that actually came out of my mouth was, Mike, you know that's not going to happen. <laughs> Fear ran through my whole body, and I was having no part of that. His wife, Dixie, who was attending, um, who was standing close by, could obviously see the complete terror on my face and immediately grabbed me and my daughter, pulled us aside, and began to pray for me. She asked God to give me guidance and peace with my decision. So I went home and prayed about it. Finally, after much thought, I decided this is something that I needed to do. And while preparing my testimony, I came across this Bible verse, Revelations 12, 11. We overcome our enemy by the blood of the Lamb, but also in the work of our testimony. I guess I never really thought of it that way. I think I was concentrating on the fear of exposing my life secrets and opening myself to judgment, but not realizing the true power there is in my story. Here we go. <laughs> so let's begin. I grew up in a di divorced home, and I look back now, I, I think that was the least of our problems. Both my parents were alcoholics, and there was a lot of verbal and physical abuse in our household. Gee, many crickets. Um, there was a lot of verbal and physical abuse in our household. 
after my parents' divorce, my mother was our primary caretaker. We went through many years of cycling between, hey, mom is doing better. We're finally on the road to a normal family life. To then days and weeks of her binge drinking with no parental supervision and just complete chaos. Eventually my mother's alcoholism overtook her and she found herself in the hospital with her organs shutting down and her life coming to an end. I remember that moment like it was yesterday. I begged, pleaded, and even bargained with God to let her live. I didn't want her to go under these circumstances. See, we had grown distant in the last few years of her life. I was starting a family of my own. I became angry and resentful towards her. Her drinking was such a distraction from the starting of my life. It seemed like everything was about her and her problems and nothing about me. I felt cheated. God did not answer my prayers the way I'd wanted and my mom passed. Little did I know that was going to be the biggest turning point in my life and the lives of my family. See, after my mother passed, I was searching desperately for peace, understanding, and anything that would help me with the tremendous guilt I had for resenting my mother. That's when I started attending Lakeview. Instead of just believing in God, I began to have a relationship with him. It was amazing. It truly was. He helped me through all that pain and guilt, and eventually I became saved. My husband and two daughters followed. Also, after sharing my faith with my sister, she and her husband started attending Lakeview and also became saved. God has helped me come to terms. This is going downhill fast. <laughs> <laughs> God has helped me come to terms with the relationship I had with my mother. He made me understand that my mom was suffering immensely and the pain needed to stop. That my mom loved me so much and that she has forgiven me for abandoning her. See, that's how I really felt. I abandoned my mother. In her deepest, darkest hour, I abandoned her. When my sister and I are talking about my mother, good times and bad, we can't help but wonder and think, you know, if mom wouldn't have, if mom hadn't passed, would we have been saved? And I say it again. If my mother had not passed, would me and my family be saved? Now I'll jump ahead 20 years or so. I have a wonderful husband, two smart and beautiful daughters. We're all saved and growing in our faith. Life is good, real good. It's about two weeks after turning the big 5-0, actually 3-0, just kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I started noticing some pain in my stomach and some bloating. I really just thought it was typical things that happen when you age, nothing serious. I went to the doctor and after an ultrasound, a few tests, and then eventually 
a CT scan, I'm told I have kidney cancer. I cannot begin to tell you the utter shock. Uh, sorry, the utter shock I was in. I mean, I was young and healthy. How can this be? The cancer had overtaken my left kidney, and it had to be removed. After removing my left kidney, I felt like things were looking up. My doctor told me the survival rate was 75 to 80 percent. Those are some pretty good odds. But a few months after my surgery, I started noticing problems with my breathing. And after more tests and more scans, we found out the cancer had spread to my lungs. Now things have changed dramatically. I was really scared. My survival rate dropped dramatically, down to 10 percent. He explained that it's terminal, and they can give me some drugs. He explained that it was terminal, and they can give me some drugs to help add more time to my life. But that was about it. I'm not going to lie. It was really hard in the beginning. I went through many feelings, including utter despair, depression, and having one of the biggest pity parties you have ever seen. But one thing I have never felt was anger. I have never felt mad at God about my circumstances. You're probably wondering why. Why doesn't she have just a tinge of resentment or anger? Well, I'll tell you, my mother. See, God had a plan with my mother's death, bringing myself and my family to faith. And that ended up being the best plan ever. So I know and trust that God will always have the best plan for me. Yes, I'm dying of cancer. But it's okay, because I'm a child of God by faith in Jesus. I know he has a plan, and he's working it out. I trust him completely and want my family and all of you to know that you can trust him too. God said it best in Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know I... For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not disaster, to give you a future and a hope. And my hope and my future is in heaven. That's it. Thank you. The Phoenix. Thank you, Teresa, for being a witness to what Christ has done in your life and to your faith. Uh, just going to ask Teresa one question. I'm in a small group with Teresa as of last fall. We do prayer requests. So, you know, you go around the room and people say things like, uh, I'm driving to Chicago this week, I need prayer. Or pray for Aunt Mary's PTSD or whatever it might be. You never asked for prayer for your cancer. In fact, we were in small groups several weeks before I even knew you had cancer. So if it was me, I'd be telling everybody, pray for me, pray for healing. And just this last Tuesday, you shared, and we cleared this ahead of time, so I'm not sharing confidential small group information. Oh, yes, you are. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Teresa shared she hasn't prayed for her, her own healing yet, but she just started praying that God would give her 
good days and things like that. So my, my question is for you, why are you hesitant to pray for healing? I think it goes back to um, my mother. See, I prayed and prayed for my mother to be healed. Begged God. And she wasn't. Um, but my family was saved because of that. Like my sister and I always talk, we don't know, do we really know if mom would have been healed, would me and my family have been saved? And it's frightening to think about that. Um, so I'm always afraid to ask God to change my circumstances. Um, I feel like I don't want to interrupt his plans or I shouldn't question his plans. Um, so I guess that's why I feel that way. <laughs> okay, that's understandable. I think, I think it's okay to ask for healing. It's okay to ask for healing. And if he doesn't deliver it, it doesn't mean you don't have enough faith. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It's just not in his plan. But I think as our father, he wants us to come to him with those requests. And we can just have a deep abiding faith that we're happy with whatever his plan is. And he can use it uh, all for his good. Now I'd like to call Ken and Pam Shoe up.